Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. If you've ever battled a swarm of mosquitoes or suffered through a cockroach infestation, you might think a decline in insect populations would be a good thing. But as Oliver Millman describes in his new book, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World, we're in the midst of a catastrophic decline in insect populations that will have a devastating impact on our food supply and biodiversity as a whole. Mr. Millman is the environment correspondent for The Guardian. His book is published by Norton. I'm very pleased to welcome to our show now. Hello. Hello, Lennon. Good to be with you. First, shouldn't we define what makes something an insect? As I understand it, bees, flies, mosquitoes, moths, butterflies, ants and beetles, but not spiders. And, and what about worms? Yeah, no, not spiders, not worms. Um, spiders are arachnids, um, essentially anything that has uh, kind of six legs, segmented abdomen. Um, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about insects. And, and worms? No, worms, worms not. I mean, they do kind of similar jobs in the environment, um, very important uh, work that worms do is, uh, alongside insects. But yeah, we're talking about bees, butterflies, uh, beetles, that kind of thing. Uh, I, we have a, slightly, a slight problem with the connection here. You're not uh, coming across as clearly as we would like. Is there something you can do to, to fix that or should we just muddle our way through? And blame it on the insect. I can try to move around. That's better. That. Is, is that better? Yes, much. Okay. Great. Uh, you write that three-quarters of the known animal species on Earth are insects, and, and there are about one million named insect species. Isn't it likely that there are even more that haven't been named or studied, maybe even five million or more? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've only really uh, kind of touch the surface really of the insect world in terms of our, our knowledge. Um, there are kind of million named species, which is more than any other type of animal out there, but they, yeah, there could be 5 million, 10 million. Why is Some there such a lack of knowledge? 30 million. Why is there such a lack of knowledge? Is it because there isn't much funding for insect research? And so biology students are less likely to choose the field than others with more funding? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good, really good question. I mean, there's, I think there's several reasons. I mean, they're small, they're often very cryptic, they're kind of hiding in bark or in soils or, um, you know, under heaps of leaves and so on. So uh, they're not immediately apparent as a, a tiger or an elephant. Um, the other thing is that, yeah, there is a kind of lack of uh, funding and interest uh, in, in entomology compared to other fields of science. One of the researchers I spoke to for my book said, you know, you've got 20,000 researchers studying one monkey and mm-hmm. one researcher studying 20,000 types uh, of insects. So, um, yeah, there's, uh, there is that kind of gap in uh, appreciation and, and uh, resource when it comes to uh, researching insects. You begin your book with a vision of life on Earth with no insects at all. What would that be like? And how likely is it that could actually happen that most <laughs> and even all insects would disappear from the planet? Right. Um, I mean, it would be a very grim place to be. We want, wouldn't want to live in that world. And indeed, we wouldn't be able to live in that world for long. The biologist E.O. Wilson, who passed away earlier this year, he said we'd only last a couple of months in a world without insects. We'd essentially uh, starve to death. Um, ecosystems would disintegrate around us. It would be a particularly uh, unpleasant place to be in. Um, 
uh, I mean, I, I aim to kind of illustrate that world in the opening of the book to kind of show what's at stake, because as, as you mentioned at the top of the show, that uh, we, we're not culturally attuned to the importance of insects. We see them as pests or irrelevancies. We don't see them as integral to life on Earth, where in fact they are um, maybe the most important creatures out there in terms of our own survival on this planet really? i mean they are absolutely crucial to to our to our um, uh, survival on this planet um we're not there are some very worrying declines of insects in uh, some parts of the world we're not on course for all insects disappearing though um i, I would like to make that clear we're not gonna we're not gonna outlive insects they will probably outlive us in some form or another well, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware that many insects like bees and butterflies are important pollinators. Uh, but you point out that insects play many other roles in our ecosystems. So uh, what percentage of our food supply relies on insects for pollination and what are some of their other functions? So about a third of all the food we eat uh, relies upon insect pollination and it's all the kind of colorful, nutritious stuff. Uh, that's on your plate, you know, the, uh, the, the apples, the cherries, the blueberries, um, uh, melons and cranberries and so on, almonds, um, and even chocolates. I mean, I think many chocolate lovers would not appreciate the fact that their, uh, their habits and their um, pleasure of eating chocolate relies entirely on a tiny little midge that can crawl within the, the gap of a, uh, the cacao plant to pollinate it. Uh, if it was not for that midge, this $100 billion a year industry would not function wow. uh, in terms of delivering chocolate to us. So crucial for food supply, crucial for nutrition, um, but like you say, many other roles. I mean, they provide uh, food for other animals. So even if you don't like insects, maybe you like amphibians, maybe you like mm. birds. Uh, there's there's uh, declines in several uh, bird species being recorded around the world because of a uh, what's thought to be a lack of insects to eat. Um, and fish. And, and fish, yes, and fish too. I mean, and this is all part of a food web that we're part of as well. So you start yanking away insects from the base of this food web, then we're affected at some point. Uh, there's also important work be, to be done to recycle nutrients through um, uh, through the soils, through plants. So insects are crucial for in terms of breaking down uh, um, matter that we don't really like to think about, dead bodies, feces and so on they're great decomposers of this waste um a lot of this kind of unglamorous work goes on in the background we don't think about it that much but insects are there to do it so that decom decomposition of dead plants and animals contributes to soil fertility right yeah that's right so the nutrients that come come from the decomposition are then recycled through the soil which keep help keeps it healthy insects also break up the soils to to kind of aerate them um yeah they're really really important when we think about the health of our forests our grasslands um all other kind of ecosystems uh, terrestrial ecosystems around the world really rely upon insects so if an insect, which is a food source for a larger animal, disappears, might that have a ripple effect? Yeah, indeed it can. I mean, if you think about, um, if you think about birds, for example, that, uh, if they don't have enough to eat, then you have that kind of cascading uh, impacts throughout uh, other bird species. You have um, smaller animals that eat insects that are then preyed upon by larger animals, uh, small mammals and so on. 
um, you know, you know, in the rodent family of amphibians, like you say, fish, um, you know, a lot of these animals are preyed upon by larger animals. So um, you do, you do start to get these kind of cascading effects through, um, through the, the ecosystem once you start uh, removing insects in large numbers. Do we have any idea how many insects in total there are on Earth right now and how that compares to insect populations of the past? Yeah, I mean, that's a really tricky one because for researchers, there wasn't much point in counting them in the past. I mean, why, why would you? They seemed everywhere, didn't they? And to a lot of people, I'm sure they still do. Uh, to, to an annoying degree, they seem everywhere. Well, um, if it's mosquitoes bothering you, yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, a, a lot of people are kind of phobic of them. Uh, and research has always been geared at finding the new and wonderful things. There's always been a kind of appreciation of love of insects. Um, you know, Winston Churchill kept butterflies to help ease his depression. Nabokov obviously had uh, fascination with butterflies too. Uh, there, there's been this kind of long... Uh, interest in insects, but it, the interest has been mainly geared towards the kind of colourful, interesting species that we can kind of name and look at and classify um, rather than counting them because it seems a rather pointless thing to do and why would you spend your valuable time and money doing that when they seemed everywhere? So it was only in recent years that uh, scientists have started to actually crunch the numbers and look at what's happening with long-term insect trends and, and the, the the trends are quite startling in, in, in many respects. We're seeing declines of 70, 80, 90 percent in some parts of the world just in the last few decades. Um, so it's an incomplete picture because we don't have that full data set from around the world. We don't we can't say universally that insects are dying off all over the planet, but certainly in places that have been looked, mainly in Europe and North America, there are some quite um, disturbing declines going on. Well, many, most people are aware of the decline in populations of monarch butterflies and honeybees. That's because we see them as beautiful and beneficial insects. And I have a friend who had a, a house up uh, in uh, north of New York in Dutchess County, and he grew milkweed to attract monarch butterflies. And for a, a number of years, he got a lot of them uh, that stopped by on their way on their migration south to Mexico, uh, and they would uh, lay eggs and stay for him, with him for a while. But in recent years, he says, he hardly sees any. Yeah, and, and what, I, I devote a chapter of the book to looking at the monarch butterflies because they are so beloved of, of many people. Um, well, they're beautiful. In terms of, and they're, they're beautiful. Yeah. And they only do good things, right? They don't bother us. No, they don't. There's no downside. I mean, if you speak to some really hardcore entomologists, they kind of say, well, they're ecologically pointless because they don't pollinate as much as bees. But I, I kind of feel they provide the art in our world. They're the, the, the beautiful paintings rather than the utilitarian things that keep the world ticking over. So I, I would say we need to keep them around for, you know, they, they have their intrinsic value and also just the beauty they bring to our uh, planets. Um, yeah, monarch butterflies are in trouble from many uh, aspects. I mean, they their milkweed is being um, doused in pesticides, also suffering from habitat loss and climate change. So there's this huge migration that goes down to Mexico. I was fortunate enough to go to central Mexico, to the mountains there to see the overwintering sites. And 
the trees there that they rely upon for their shelter when they get there. And it's a spectacular sight, one of the great sights of nature to see these kind of orange and black butterflies draped over these trees, just millions of them. Um, that's under threat because of climate change. The, the trees uh, are, are no longer in a habitable range in terms of their temperature. They have to creep up the mountain slowly to, to find kind of cooler climbs. But obviously uh, climate change is happening faster than trees can move. So, um, they, they, you know, that migration is under threat. The migration to the West Coast, to California, um, is also under threat. A couple of years ago, the, the population of monarchs crashed so much it was only 1% of what it was in the 1980s. So in the 1980s, you'd see millions of, you could count millions of monarch butterflies up the, uh, up the California coast. Now, now it's down to just a few thousand. So um, yeah, it's, it's a, an amazing sight, amazing spectacle of nature that we're uh, in danger of losing. Well, we've eradicated milkweed weed habitats uh, as part of agriculture. Has there been an effort to bring their numbers back up? How would we go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, I would say in terms of um, everyday uh, members of the public and grassroots group uh, work, the effort to save monarch butterflies is unparalleled in terms of other insects. I mean, uh, so much work has been done by people who obviously love these creatures to, to help save them. So there's um, efforts being done to plant milkweed and certainly several cities, uh, mayors have signed on to uh, uh, agreements to, to help populate uh, milkweed back into the environment. Uh, some people breed them at home. Uh, there's obviously some pressure on uh, kind of companies and, and Congress to, to act on the various chemicals that are harming monarchs as well as other insects. So there's certainly a lot of passion behind behind the um, behind the uh, effort to help them. But one one person who kind of leads this work did tell me he feels it's a bit like. Um, Alice in Wonderland with the uh, Red Queen, you always have to kind of run twice as fast as to keep up. We're losing so much habitat that even if you restore habitat, it's kind of, you're only breaking even, really. You, you, you're always, we're always behind. So until we change the model of agriculture and development in the US, then um, you're going to face problems for and not in, in Mexico? Of these creatures. Sorry? And not in Mexico, where many of them migrate to? Yeah, I mean, there are similar, similar pressures in Mexico. I mean, the, the monarch butterfly sanctuary in, in, in central Mexico, where I went, that is surrounded by smallholding farmers, um, smallhold farmers who uh, traditionally made a, a living through logging, amongst other things. And so there's pressure to log those areas, to, to cut down the trees that the monarchs rely upon. Uh, and obviously, they use um, chemicals. They use Roundup. They use you know everything that uh, americans would so it's not quite on the same scale as the us in terms of its um, size and uh, potency but certainly the same kind of uh, uh, pressures are, are being brought to bear in mexico as well as the us my guest on today's leonard lopate at large is oliver millman who's written a book called the insect crisis the fall of the tiny empires that run the world published by Norton. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, mentioned honeybees. They don't just produce honey. They're important pollinators. Aren't beehives being trucked into California almond groves to pollinate the trees every year? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think a lot of people have the idea that uh, beekeepers uh, or keeping bees is a kind of hobby, this kind of sideline thing that somebody does, keeps a couple of hives in their backyard and gets the honey from it to smear on his or her toast in the morning. And, and that's the kind of kind of idyllic lifestyle that beekeepers lead. But in reality, if you if you have quite a few hives as a beekeeper, now you're almost like a contracted worker. You are um, someone who will ship those um, hives around the country to prop up their agricultural system, mm. whether that's citrus or blueberries or, like you say, almonds in um, California. Well, haven't honeybees been falling victim to something called varroa mites? Uh, is that a recent problem? That's insects uh, killing off insects. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they have these mites that have been introduced. Uh, I mean, honeybees are introduced to the U.S. anyway, but then there's further introductions uh, of other creatures, and these mites have leapt onto honeybees who don't have a natural defense against them. So that's uh, affecting them. Um, so there, it's a constant struggle for beekeepers to, to keep honeybee numbers up. They have to kind of do all kinds of things to try and breed them more quickly, to, to, to use very various kind of chemical interventions to help them. Uh, it's, it's quite a struggle to kind of keep that going, and it's, it's getting harder and harder as the environmental conditions become worse for, for honeybees as well as other bees. So, yeah, it's, it's a worry in terms of um, food security when you think about the dependency we have upon honeybees, and yet um, they, they are under threat uh, on, a, on multiple fronts. Is the only way to kill Varroa mites to use chemical pesticides? <laughs> We're talking about trying to cut down on pesticides. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, and mites are... are also insects, aren't they? Do they have any positive, uh, do they play any positive <laughs> role in the environment? No, I, I'm not that I'm aware of. Um, I'm certainly not advocating that all insects are, are wonderfully beneficial to everything. Um, uh, in terms of treatments, yeah, most of them involve chemicals. There are some, I think, some kind of organic treatments that have been touted, but there is no, um, there is no cure all for this uh, this problem. Unfortunately, it's a kind of a cycle of addiction we've got into, where we've um, relied so heavily upon honeybees, and the only way to kind of uh, keep production up to the levels we want uh, is to artificially pump up the level of honeybees using these kind of chemical inputs. So it's kind of an unhealthy cycle all around, really. Is there a group that keeps track of, it, of insect populations? And how would we go about counting every insect since some of them have very short lifespans? Wouldn't any numbers simply be estimates? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's kind of almost impossible job. And um, there's no one, I think, out there trying to count in any individual uh, insect. I think the Smithsonian did a estimate that there was something like 10 quintillion uh, insects in the world, which is a very, very large number indeed. Um, but I mean, honeybee hives will have kind of 50, 60, 70,000 bees in it. Um, you know, you can, you can do the math when you multiply that by the number of hives kept around the world, but then all the kind of wild insects that aren't managed by humans, there's, yeah, there's, it's, you can only take a guess at how many ants there are in the world, for example. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge number. You write about uh, something called the windshield effect. Uh, is that the, the number of bugs that wind up on the windshields of cars that travel yeah. at high speeds? Are, are we seeing more nowadays, or has it pretty much been the same over the years? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the kind of aspects of decline that a lot of people can kind of latch onto and understand without looking at the scientific literature. I mean, um, a lot of people anecdotally have said to me, oh, yeah, I, I remember driving across country as a kid on vacation and uh, my parents having to stop to scrape the, the bugs off the windshield and it just doesn't happen anymore. And it's certainly something I remembered uh, when I was younger. And I was driving around Montana the kind of last year, um, one of the most sparsely, sparsely populated states in the country, of course, and um, barely saw anybody around. I did that for a whole week and there wasn't a single bug on my windshield. And that's a kind of symptom uh, of the decline of insects, this, this lack of uh, insect life splattering against the windshield. And some scientists have actually um, turned this into to research. There was one scientist, this kind of rather eccentric guy called uh, Anders Papin-Muller, who uh, started driving um, an old beat-up 1960s Ford Anglia up and down the same stretch of road in Denmark uh, uh, to, to count how many bugs hit his windshield. He's been doing that every summer since 1997, and he found a 97% decline uh, to a couple of years ago of insects striking the windshield. So it, it's, it's, not, it's not just anecdotes. It appears that really is there really are fewer, fewer bugs hitting our windshield than there once was. And we should point out that this is not just uh, a phenomenon in the United States. Um, hasn't uh, the countryside of England been emptied of insect life? Uh, and you mentioned Denmark, and I'm assuming the war in Ukraine is having an effect. Yeah, so um, butterfly numbers in the UK, for example, are half of what they were um, 50 years ago. Uh, you know, you've seen a kind of 80% of decline in butterflies in the Netherlands. There was this kind of really landmark study that came out of Germany in 2017 that found that the uh, the annual average weight of flying insects caught in traps in nature reserves had fallen by three quarters since 1989. Um, the rainforest of Puerto Rico has been almost emptied of insects, according to one study. I mean, this is happening all over the world uh, in different spots. And again, we don't have the complete picture in every single country, but it seems in different kinds, different countries, different kinds of landscapes, we're seeing the same story again and again of these um, huge catastrophic declines. And we're hearing that the clearing of the rainforest in the Amazon is leading to global warming. Uh, is there a direct connection between that and what we're seeing with the insects? Potentially, yes. There, there's less research that's come out of the tropics on insect numbers, which is a shame in a way because the tropics uh, are a vast treasure trove of insect life as well as other life, of course. I mean, if we knew what was going on in the tropics, I think we'd have a far fuller understanding of what was happening with the insect crisis. But certainly it's going to have an effect. Uh, deforestation, drought, uh, fire, um, climate change. I mean, they, these are all kind of very heavy pressures on uh, insects. And um, I think there's little doubt that's uh, influencing insect numbers there. We've also been hearing about something called insectageddon, <laughs> like Armageddon, I guess. <laughs> Do we know who coined this term? <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, after that study in Germany came out in 2017, you saw this kind of flurry of media activity looking at insect declines and i think the new york uh, times magazine looked at you know coined the term uh, insect armageddon or insect again 
um, other so outlets. So you're giving a specific. Apocalypse. You're giving a specific date when public awareness <laughs> of the problem began. October 18, 2017. Yeah, twenty seventeen is when this this German study came out, and and following that, it triggered this kind of wave of media interest in insect declines that we've seen. Um, obviously, in the last couple of years, we've have a load of other problems that have been going on in the world. So, so maybe not so much in the last couple of years, but certainly around 2017, 2018, 2019, we started seeing these uh, kind of long form pieces looking at, you know, are we going to lose all the insects um, and, and using this kind of biblical language around, uh, around their demise. So, yeah, it, it certainly kind of caught certain people's imagination around that time. Well, 2017 was only five years ago. Weren't mm. scientists aware of the decline long before that? Uh, anecdotally, yes, and there were a few studies before then. Um, the, the United Nations was kind of warning of insect declines back in kind of uh, the early 2010s, for example. But um, in terms of a kind of standardized study that had data that went back you know, decades in a very kind of systemized way, uh, that German study really was a kind of big breakthrough. It was kind of started to make scientists think okay i've got all this uh, information all this data in my uh, in my desk drawer maybe i should look through it to see if i've also um, seen insect declines because again uh, not many people were looking for declines before uh, the last few years it's it's only been in the last kind of couple of years we started to see study after study after study coming out showing these uh, declines were some scientists seeing declines in the populations of a particular insect without realizing that it was part of a larger problem? Yeah, they, they were. I, I did speak to some scientists who were doing work in the, um, the forest of New Hampshire, and they actually um, were looking at kind of beetles and some other creatures there. And um, it was only in, the last, uh, only in the last couple of years they started looking at kind of numbers coin traps, and they compared it to what was happening in the 70s, and they found there was an 83% decline in beetle abundance in this protected forest in New Hampshire. Mm compared to the 70s, and it was kind of startling to them. I was like, my God, this, this kind of wipeout has been happening just uh, almost unnoticed. Are we seeing equal declines in all insect populations? Might some species be actually increasing in numbers as a result of what's going on? Yeah, certainly they are. There's certainly um, studies showing some increases in some places. I wouldn't like to give the idea it's a kind of sin single linear line that's sloping downwards to oblivion and that's it. I mean, there's some species doing okay, some kind of increasing and some doing very badly. I think the unfortunate thing from a kind of human point of view is we're losing a lot of things that we value and love, the, the colorful butterflies, the, the bees that help supply our food, uh, a lot of the fun beetles, that kind of thing. And the things we're helping uh, increase and um, uh, bloom in population are the, are the things we don't really want around. It's the, the bed bugs, it's the cockroaches, uh, it's the mosquitoes. I mean, mosquitoes love warm, damp conditions. And, and what are we doing with climate change? We are increasing the global temperature. Uh, we're changing precipitation patterns. There's one uh, estimate that a billion extra people are going to be soon exposed to disease-carrying mosquitoes that they, that were, they weren't previously because of uh, climate change. So we are altering global conditions to kind of rejig the insect world and, and not in a very favorable way to us. Do mosquitoes and bed bugs have any positive, play any positive role in the environment? 
I mean, I think I spoke to maybe there's probably five people in the world who are enthusiastically um, pro mosquito, and I think I spoke to all of them for the book. So um, uh, they, there are, according to these scientists, some important uh, parts to mosquitoes' life um, in terms of food for other creatures. They also pollinate some plants, such as pansies. Um, they they kind of are part of the overall ecosystem in terms of you know, de- decomposition of their own bodies, for example. I mean, they they do serve a role. I mean, how important that role is is you know, debatable. I don't think any bird would starve to death without uh, mosquitoes, but they are part of it. And I think once you start removing all these creatures en masse, you start having unintended consequences that you can't quite foresee. Um, I mean, there are these insects that are we find completely um, uh, abhorrent and we would want to get rid of. But um, it's important to note that um, they're all here to serve a function well, <laughs> in some respect. They're all here for a reason. Well, so, cockroaches um, definitely keep uh, the uh, keep a whole bunch of people uh, in business as a result of exterminators. <laughs> so um, yeah. it's providing employment. Um, what's the Krefeld entomological society what kind of work do they do oh they're a group of um entomologists some amateurs some uh, professional scientists and they're um uh, based in the german city of crayfield and they came up with this german study i was discussing the that showed this kind of huge decline in um, insect numbers in germany and they they've been doing this incredible work going back decades and decades and they had kind of records and kind of floppy disks and on typewritten notes and so on going back a long way and they've been kind of collecting information through these traps they set in in nature reserves they're called malaise traps they look like kind of these hovering tents that funnel insects through them to these kind of um, bowls of uh, alcohol where they get trapped and so that you can then kind of count them hmm. and weigh them and they've been doing that for years and years and years but uh, it was only it was only in 2017 they actually gathered all the data and looked at what was happening with um, insect trends. And although anecdotally they've been talking about seeing less stuff around, uh, they were quite startled to find this uh, amazing decline. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. The ants go marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah. Go marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah. The ants go marching one by one. The little one eats a juicy plum. And they all go marching down to the ground to get out of the rain. Yum, yum, yum. The ants go marching two by two, hurrah, hurrah. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Oliver Millman. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. Just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Jury, 
do it during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and thank you so much. And I'm returning now to Oliver Millman, who's the environment correspondent for The, the Guardian, and whose book, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tony, t- Tiny Empires That Run the World, is published by Norton. Uh, so we um, th- we were talking about the loss of insect habitats when wilderness areas are developed for new construction or even turned into agricultural land. Is the type of industrial agriculture practice in this country, especially monoculture, the concentration of just a few crops like corn and soybeans, bad for insects? Yeah, it's terribly bad. It kind of creates a hellscape for them, really, if you think if you think you're like a bee um, in that kind of mindset, you look around, there's not much to eat and what there is uh, is kind of covered in poison in terms of the yeah. pesticides being used. So, yeah, the, the type of farming uh, pioneered and um, expanded in the U.S. is extremely harmful to insects. It doesn't really give them a chance to survive on the landscape. They're pushed to the margins and then snuffed out entirely. So these kind of monocultural, huge... Uh, fields of just soy or wheat or corn. Uh, there's nothing much there for insects. One researcher said it's like we're giving them chips, nothing but chips, even if you don't like chips or are allergic to chips. I mean, there's nothing, uh, not much choice there for them, not much shelter for them. Uh, and it's uh, proved extremely detrimental to their numbers. Well, the name pesticide indicates what what we see their role is, <laughs> that they're killing pests. But what about herbicides? Can they kill insects by destroying their food sources? Yeah, they can, and they, they can be toxic to insects in some, uh, in some instances too. So, yeah, there's a whole kind of cocktail of um, chemicals that we, we use now routinely uh, across uh, our homes, our backyards, uh, and agricultural areas that... Um, uh, has been very harmful to insects. I mean, by one estimate, you, American agricultural land has become um, 48 times more toxic over the last 25 years mm. because there's this been constant layering of of uh, different chemicals. Just every you know every kind of year, just more and more going into the soils. Then, of course, doesn't stay in the soils. It seeps into waterways and so on. So uh, it's picked up. Uh, in pollen by bees it gets into aquatic animals um uh, by the streams and rivers and so on Uh, it's even picked up by birds i mean this kind of stuff is uh, all over the environment being picked up by everything has the decline in insect populations begun to affect crop yields in some places there is some research yeah showing that there has been a a decline in certain um uh, crops uh, we're starting to see that now uh, in the U.S. in terms of uh, apples, blueberries, and cherries. It's kind of limiting uh, those crops. Um, you know, the realistic assumption would be that those kind of problems will multiply unless we get a handle on the insect crisis. Certainly don't want to be in a situation that has eventuated in some parts of China where there are so few bees that... Um, teams of people have to fan out into orchards with sticks with brushes on Mm. to hand pollinate uh, all the fruits there Um, that's kind of taking place in some parts of southwestern china Um, so you don't want to be in that situation you want to have the insects around to do that work rather than 
um, try and force people to do it or, or, or go without. So um, hopefully those kind of food limitations uh, don't become more, more, more widespread. The United Nations has warned that we do face a food security crisis this century if we do not handle the uh, declines in, in pollination. Isn't there a way to control destructive insects in agriculture called integrated pest management that's practiced by organic farmers? Yeah, that's right. So there is a kind of new school of thought, I suppose you could say, amongst some farmers uh, around uh, moving away from pesticides, bringing back diversity to farming. Uh, so that traditional view that many of us would have of farmers being, you know, uh, you know, family-run thing where you have, you know, some crops here, an orchard there, some chickens running around. Um, you know, that's a kind of quite an old-fashioned view now, isn't it? Because it's kind of largely big ag-dominated uh, landscapes. Have cattle come in and fertilize the the land as well. Right, yes. We're starting to that's see right. more of that. Take the cattle out of the pens and put them back in the fields. Yeah, that's right. It, and diversity in landscapes is a really important thing because then you start having these different inputs to the land rather than just simply one crop and a lot of chemicals. You start having, um, you know, different um, different types of decomposition that happen, uh, different types of insect around. It's actually quite beneficial to have certain types of insect around if you're a farmer. I know. Most uh, most people would think farmers would hate all insects because they think of aphids or other things that will chew through their crops. But if you get rid of beetles and wasps uh, and things like that, you're actually getting rid of really important insects that will um, prey upon the pests that you want to get rid of. You're getting rid of your kind of nightclub bouncers that stop uh, stop the you know people coming in and ruining the party if you're a um, if you're a farmer so you 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 want those beneficial insects around simply wiping out everything with this indiscriminate bombardment of pesticides is not helpful for insects obviously but it's it's not helpful for farmers either it's not really doing much to improve yields it's not helping um you know provide more food to more people it's 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 a kind of detrimental uh, kind of vicious cycle that only really helps the manufacturers of the pesticides themselves. Why then hasn't integrated pest management caught on in conventional agriculture? Is it more expensive, more labor-intensive than than just spraying chemicals? Yeah, I mean, it takes a bit more thought and planning, and you have to do kind of mechanical weeding rather than um, uh, than putting. Uh, pesticides everywhere and it was also seems kind of to some people i'm sure kind of radical and um wrong-headed um i mean there has there is a model of farming in this country that has been reinforced through the major companies that provide the the chemicals and the seeds and so on uh and if you're a farmer you want to keep yields up you don't really want to deviate from that if you're if you're thinking about your own livelihood so um, it's quite hard to be that person who swims against the tide in many respects, isn't it? And um, but some are, and it'll be interesting to see whether it catches on. Isn't there a view in some scientific circles that managed honeybees compete with wild bees like bumblebees for food? So if honeybee populations decline, will wild bees do better and fill the vacuum? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's become a bit of a kind of hipster trend, hasn't it? In many cities, this kind of idea of urban beekeeping, people wanting to put, um, you know, hives of honeybees on roofs 
moves to another kind of spaces in, in cities. And uh, it's kind of really interesting and good to see in many respects that people have that kind of fondness for, for bees. But um, our view of what bees are is very narrow, isn't it? I mean, there's thousands and thousands of species of bee, but we kind of tend to think just of honeybees. We think of, uh, you know, yellow and black striped creatures that, that buzz around, they make honey, and that's a bee to us. Um, unfortunately, they are, uh, like I was saying before, an agricultural input in many respects. And that's because they're very good at what they do in terms of hoovering up uh, all the kind of pollen in an area, all the food, the nectar, uh, and they have huge numbers in their hives. So if you kind of put some honeybee hives around uh, and they get all the food, then there's nothing left for uh, bumblebees, mason bees, all these kind of um, solitary bees and small hive bees. So, um, yeah, they can prove detrimental to other bees if you introduce them in large numbers. Getting back to the, the insects that are pests, like flies, gnats, mosquitoes, and cockroaches, are they disappearing at the same rate? Not that we can see, no. Um, I, I haven't seen many studies showing uh, you know, huge declines of those kind of creatures because, again, we are, we are helping them in many respects. I mean, if you're a cockroach, for example, the American and German cockroach are the two species we see scuttling across our kitchen floors that we hate to see. Um, if you you want a world where there is a growing human population, where there's more waste being left around, uh, more kind of sprawling homes everywhere that you can help invade. I mean, that's that's actually beneficial for insects, uh, for cockroaches. Sorry. So, um, yeah, we are we we are kind of engineering a world, unfortunately, that is. Um, uh, favorable to those kind of insects we don't really want around. Do cockroaches play any useful role in the world? Haven't they been used in Chinese medicine? Yeah, they have. They're kind of ground up into a kind of um, tea that people drink for their ailments um, and have been done for, for centuries. I mean, this is not kind of new medicine. It's kind of traditional medicine being used there. Um, there's whole kind of cockroach farms that um, uh, uh, kept in China to, to help create uh, medicines there. Um, huge warehouses full of them, uh, which is the kind of stuff of nightmares, I think, for many people. But that's um, that's what they do there. Um, again, they, they, they're they a food source uh, to other creatures. They break down waste. They do a lot of work in forests, not the ones we see in our homes. There's lots of thousands of species that live in forests doing lots of important ec ecological work there too um and you know they're in, you know if you can kind of get rid of your distaste for them for a second they are you know impressive creatures in their own right i mean they can survive for two weeks after being beheaded they can crash into walls and then scale them vertically i mean they uh, they're kind of amazing survivors of our world they are um quite uh, quite impressive in that respect my guest on today's london located at large is oliver millman his book, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World, is published by uh, Norton. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.orgs. I want to get back to cockroaches. Um, they uh, s spread many of the world's illnesses. How do they even pick them up? How, sorry, how do you, what, sorry? I, sorry, I missed uh, you there. If, if a mosquito bites me <laughs> and causes me to become ill, how did it get the... Th oh, yes. 
Yeah, they're, well, they're a vector of disease, aren't they? So they um, uh, they they carry around through the um, through the blood that they get uh, various diseases. Um, you know, oh, so they bite somebody. So they bite a cow and then that then spread the the illness that the cow uh, put into their body, the bacteria, whatever. Yes. The, and, yeah, through, and then they they inject it into us. Yeah, through that they 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 can um, they can help transfer it around. And there's obviously malaria. There's uh, dengue. There's quite a few other uh, yellow fever. Quite a few different um, diseases that mosquitoes can can spread. By some estimates, they are the most deadly creature in the world to humans because of the death toll that um, comes from disease they spread around. Are they useful in any way? Do they pollinate any plants? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they do. They pollinate some plants at dusk, though, so we don't really see it happening because uh, they kind of come out at dusk, don't they? Which um, we all know about if we're out camping, we, we get swarmed by uh, mosquitoes. Uh, but they do pollinate some plants. They're eaten by some creatures. Uh, yeah, I, I was speaking to one researcher who spent 20 years trying to find ways to genetically uh, modify mosquitoes to, in order to kill them off, and she said she had an epiphany one moment when she was uh, looking through the microscope at a mosquito and thought it looked beautiful with its big compound eyes and its colorful wings and she thought you know maybe there's kind of some unintended consequences if we did wipe them all out so she switched her work to start looking at ways to help them stop reproducing or stop spreading disease rather than kill them all off entirely um so yeah it is hard to kind of think about and appreciate mosquitoes and and certainly um I've never been a big lover of them, but uh, <laughs> they do they do have a role here. They do they do play a part in some respect. Have some insect species already disappeared completely? Some that maybe never even been named or studied. Yeah, and now I think that's the big risk. We are losing lots of insect species, probably unknowingly, because uh, because of our ways, we are kind of wiping out. Um, whole parts of the natural world through habitat destruction and climate change, pesticide use, you know, pollution, um, without really knowing what's there, which is a great shame. Um, the, the Probably the premier uh, insect conservation group in the US is called the Xerxes Society, and that's named after the Xerxes Blue, which was a, a type of butterfly that was extinguished in uh, California. Um, there's several bumblebees now on the endangered species list in the US. Uh, the, the risk being lost as well. So extinctions happen and, and um, it's, you know, one of the great tragedies of our, of our era that we are driving what is thought to be the sixth mass extinction in the planet's history and the first to be done by a single species, which of course is us. But isn't this something that also happens naturally? One species will disappear, another new one will appear in its mm. place? Yeah, entirely. Um, I think, I think the key here is the pace, isn't it, and the scale. So there's some estimates the the background extinction rate going on in the world at the moment is about 100 to 1,000 times faster than what it was prior to human intervention in in, uh, in our environment. So um, we've sped up what, like you rightly say, is a is a natural thing. I mean, certain animals, um, you know, cannot keep pace with uh, others that um, have an advantage. Uh, or, or climate changes in some way subtly that is to their detriment. So uh, extinctions have always happened. Um, we are just pressing the accelerator on that. We're you know, 
revving up the engine of extinction, unfortunately, to a degree that's wiping out huge tranches of life around the world. Your book is partly a celebration of the diversity and usefulness of insects. What are you hoping your readers will take away from it? Do you you see this as a call to action? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I hope people firstly appreciate insects because I feel you can't really tackle the problem if you dislike the victim. I mean, it's it's hard to kind of... Well, they get a bad generate. rap. Yeah. Culturally, we, we engineered to hate them, really. I mean, we call them creepy crawlies, don't we? We say that people are uh, annoying us, are bugging us. Um, you speak to entomologists who do work in schools and they say that kindergartners love insects. They think they're really great but when they get to high school um uh you know they're reviled by them they just they can't stand them so obviously we're taught in some respects to to dislike insects um so i hope that at least this book will hope will give people pause of thought about uh their dislike of insects their utility to us and the world their beauty as well they are they are beautiful in many respects uh and hopefully you know, think a little bit more deeply about what we're doing and how we're changing things. I think it's also important to to think about um, uh, our own role in this as individuals, because climate change, for example, can seem such a huge intractable problem. And I didn't want to portray this as this kind of overwhelming thing that no one could do anything about. If you have a backyard, you can do something about this if you buy organic you can do something about this it's not going to solve the problem overnight everywhere but there are things that people can do individually as well as collectively on this issue so practices like composting replacing lawns with wildflowers and planting trees are a positive force in reversing this dramatic decline in insect populations yeah that's right i mean i know the aesthetic ideal is the kind of uh, two garage, uh, two car garage, suburban home with a kind of this kind of manicured lawn. Um, yeah, so, some towns that. won't even allow people to plant a tree on their front lawn. Yeah, yeah. I've spoken to people who've had the neighborhood association knock on the door because they've let their grass grow a bit too long. Um, uh, that is disastrous for insects because, again, it's a desert. It's much like the monocultural farming uh, practice. There's nothing there for them in a shortcut lawn. If you just let the grass grow a little bit, if you yeah plant some uh, plants that native pollinators like, some trees, if you don't rake the leaves as much because lots of um, uh, insects gather under leaves, and if you reduce the chemicals that you uh, use on your property, these are all things that can help. You can provide insects with an oasis. Uh, they can kind of hold on in in some places and they are the great survivors i mean like i was saying before they've survived five mass extinctions in the earth's history in the past if we give them a chance they can maybe get through this one too do you think that government action would could help is it even possible yeah Yeah, it is i mean if you look at what's happening in european union for example they've banned the three worst neonicotinoids which this class of chemicals is particularly deadly to to bees um they banned them outdoor use and france has banned them for indoor use in greenhouses too um there's no such regulatory action underway in the us um barack obama tried to ban their use in national parks but that was reversed under donald trump uh, there doesn't seem to be any kind of move to do uh, anything more on that so that's that's an area that could be looked at 
Uh, habitat restoration is another huge area, getting kind of wildlife corridors that go through landscapes rather than just having these monocultural fields with, with nothing there. Um, there are things that government can do for sure. To, but we to don't help. seem to be very successful in reversing climate change now. <laughs> no. I mean, there's multiple reasons to, to do something about climate change. Insects is just one of them. Um, but yeah, the, the evidence shows that when it comes to these kind of uh, huge multifaceted problems, we are, we are quite slow to react, unfortunately. Uh, you have another book in the works? Not just yet. I, I would have to say that writing a, a book in a small apartment in Brooklyn during a pandemic is the kind of opposite <laughs> of a Zen writing experience. Like, uh, it wasn't. It was incredibly rewarding, and, and I'm really pleased with the outcome. But um, yeah, it can be a bit of a slog. So I'm taking a little bit of time to think about what would be uh, what would be next. And uh, my great thanks to you for being on our show, Oliver Millman. His book, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World, published by Norton. Mr. Millman is the environment correspondent for The Guardian. He's been with The Guardian for many years, even though he is living in Brooklyn, right? That's right, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for, again for being on our show. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Barbara Kahn for helping prepare today's interview and to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of London Locate at Large, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. That's L-O-P-A-T-E, by the way. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to continue bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World by Oliver Millman. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy and we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because we rely totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Um, WBI is the only station, this historic station, the only one the New York dial that's 100% listener sponsored. Help keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope that you can join us on Monday when my guest will be Daniel Bergner discussing his new book, The Mind and the Moon. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.